We are charging through a message series that I'm calling Getting What You Want. And we've been talking about, for the last month or so, we've been talking about what happens in our lives when getting what we want becomes all-consuming and it just controls everything in our lives. We started by talking about sex and how sex can become a god. We've talked about love and romance and when that just becomes all-consuming. Last week we talked about money and the pursuit of money that can eclipse everything. And today I want to talk with you about success. You probably know people, or maybe you are one of those people, that in your life, success in your job, in your career, whatever it is, whatever environment you live in, success has become all-consuming for you. I want to talk with you today about what happens when getting what you want becomes everything in your life. And to start off this morning, I would like to invite the most successful person that I know in the world to come and share with you, and that's my wife, Chris. Would you give it up for Chris as she comes? I have to tell you, I did a really bad thing this morning. <laughs> Chris hates Chris hates public speaking. She does not like talking in front of people at all. And uh, when we had our little donut break, I went back and asked her if she would come and talk to you this morning. And so she hasn't had very much notice, and, and I, I will probably pay dearly later. No. But, <laughs> but she did agree to come and share. I would just like her, I would like you to hear a little bit of her story. Uh, when we're telling this story, we refer to it as uh, the point at which I ruined her life. Uh, because... Uh, Chris, more than anything in, in the world, when she was a young adult, wanted to be a doctor. And so I, I wanted to tell you that story just a little bit, but uh, start by just telling the people what you do for a career now. Would you just start with that? Um, some of you know. Some, um, I'm a histotechnologist, which means I work in pathology and um, process all of your body parts that come to the hospital. And we make slides for the pathologist to die, do all the diagnosing here in the valley, actually, so... Body parts is what And I do. being a histotechnologist is not really the kind of career that you dream about being when you're in high school, right? No, nobody knows what we do. There's like five of us in the whole city. Some are in the vet lab as well, but no, nobody knows what we and, do. And really nobody just decides to become a no. histotechnologist. You kind of fall into it, yes. right? Yes. And this is how I ruined your life is instead <laughs> of becoming a doctor, you became a histotechnologist, yes. right? Yes. And you, worked, you work for a doctor. Yes. You're kind of the doctor... Go get me coffee, girl. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> well, tell, tell the story a little bit, Chris. What, what was it that motivated you to become a doctor when you were younger? Um, I was really good in sciences when I was a kid, and I loved that stuff. And actually, what really promoted that, I was in um, a club in high school, and we did a blood drive, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world to... People were passing out and stuff. I just thought that was great. So I wouldn't give blood, but I would help with the people passing out and all that stuff. So that kind of triggered it that I wanted to go in the health services. And so, but um, I was really good. I got great scores in all my sciences and advanced sciences. So I thought this must be where I'm supposed to be in life. And then I really wasn't following the Lord in high school. And I saw what doctors drove and owned. And that's what I thought. That's where I was going. And so, and I part of this was probably motivated by your family situation as a young person. Yeah. Your dad owned a toy store. Yeah. 
And uh, because of some, some situations in the city, they tore up the road in front of the store and they lost the business, right? Yeah, we lost everything. And so your family went through a very difficult time. And, yeah. and how did that contribute to your desire to be successful in life? Well, we struggled with money as a, as a kid. I, I mean, we had people bringing food baskets, dropping them on the doorstep when I was a kid. And, and, that's, and, and I knew that it was my church family that was doing it and that the Lord would always provide. But I never wanted to struggle with money again as I watched my parents struggle. I, you know, you kind of set that in your heart when you're a kid, you know. And I said, I will never suffer like this when I'm, when I'm an adult. And so I kind of set it in my heart that I would, I would never have to go through this again. And so I was, as a young adult, I had decided that I would do whatever it took to become successful money-wise so that I would never have to go through that again. And then I ruined your life. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 tell the story of how this changed for you. You were going to be a doctor. Yeah, and I was in the pre-med program at Boise State, and... Um, doing really pretty well, and we were hitting some of those weeding out classes where it's like calculus and some advanced um, physiology classes and stuff, and it's, you, it weeds you out, and you know, the top 12, if that's what you want, that's, they keep going on to medical school, and so we were all struggling, and, and I had kind of, um, I'd gone to church, and I had really found Jesus in my life again, and had rededicated my life to him, and I even took a semester off because I said, my priorities are a little messed up here of what I want now in life, kind of changed when I met Jesus. And then I met him as well, and <clears throat> that really messed things up. Same too. time she met Jesus. It was a really good period in her life. <laughs> Russ and Jesus. So um, we were dating and not dating, and, and every time he would break up with me, my grades would just soar because... I was a mess, and so... You mean they would nosedive? Nosedive. They yeah. Nosedive. Sore down, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I got the first D of my life when he broke up with me. So, that kind of messes with your GPA if you want to go to medical school. Yeah. They're booing me. <laughs> Last time I have you share. <laughs> so... What do you think would have been different if you hadn't changed course in your life? Hmm. I think I would be really unhappy because I think I would find at the end of myself, I would, I, would, I would probably be successful in the medical field, but it's just empty at the end. You know, just having the stuff I would want to acquire and financial security would be all that I would have had. That's it. As opposed to? Happiness. Oh. <laughs> no, I feel like I really have a fulfilled life. The Lord, I feel like he, he gave me what the desires of my heart were because I still get to work in the hospital and I still get to work with doctors and, and be in that environment that I love. But I don't have to be, that's not all of my life. That's not everything. And so I feel like he, he gives you the desires of your heart when you give them to him. He gives them back to you and, and better, you know. He really so, does. Yeah. Thank you, Chrissy, for sharing. There are lots of people. Uh, this, has been, this has been something that from time to time in my life has been a struggle for me. Making success the number one goal in our lives. Uh, there are people in our world who have achieved superstardom because they are driven to succeed beyond everything else. I read an interview this week that uh, the pop superstar Madonna gave, and if you have followed Madonna's career over the decades, 
Uh, she has been at the top of her game, I, I believe, for about three decades. And she has been driven to succeed. And she said this. I just want to read a quote from this interview that I read uh, of what Madonna said a number of years ago. She said, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and I discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think that I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. This is from somebody who is at the top of her game in the popular music industry. And it's because she feels like she's a nobody and she has to prove to the world that she is somebody. This week I heard a new country song by Danny Gokey, and in that song he sings, nobody wants to be a nobody, everybody wants to be a somebody. Kind of a clever lyric, and I think we can all relate to it. It's awful when you feel like you're a nobody. And this is one of the things that can drive lots of people to to achieve success in their business, in their family, whatever it is, it becomes all-consuming when we feel like we have to prove to the world that we're somebody. I want to ask you this morning, if there's a possibility that success for you has become a god, has your achievement in life become all-consuming to the point that it eclipses everything else, And I've got three questions that I want to throw up on this screen that I want you to ask yourself this morning. The first question is this. Uh, Actually, it's not a question. It's a statement. Oh, I missed that part, didn't I? Success is like a drug. If you're taking notes this morning, sorry, I messed this all up by asking Chris to share and then I lost my place because I messed my plan up. Uh, This is what I want you to write down first of all this morning. Success is like a drug. This is really true. Success is like a drug. When you get a taste of it, especially if you have this deficit in your soul that is driving you to prove to the world that you're a somebody, success can be like a drug. It can become as powerful as alcohol can be to an alcoholic. In fact, there are some business writers today who are writing that success has become the new alcohol of our generation. And people abuse their lives in the same way that an alcoholic abuses alcohol. Meaning that they they abuse their time, they abuse their rest, they ignore their family, they ignore their wives. Everything just goes off to the periphery because success is all there is. It becomes like a drug. And that brings me to the statements that I want you to ask yourself this morning. Statement number one is this. Is this true of you? Uh... Success brings me a powerful sense of security. Success brings me a powerful sense of security. Now, if this is true for you, you may have bought into this addiction of success that becomes like a drug to many of us. Second statement is this. Success has led me to adopt a distorted view of myself. Success has led me to adopt a distorted view of myself. This is one of the things that happens when people achieve a certain level of success. A lot of times they become very self-impressed. 
they become self-consumed, and they, they assume that they are an expert in every field. Now, I don't know Madonna personally. I'm just using her as an example this morning. But if we were to have a conversation with Madonna, she might fit this category in which she is obviously uh, an expert in the field of popular music. She knows how to reinvent herself. She knows how to sell records. She knows how to sell concerts. And people that become this successful a lot of times assume that they know everything about everything else. And so if you're having a conversation with somebody like this, they... they, Uh, give off this air and they talk about topics that a lot of times they know nothing about but they assume that they're an expert they have a distorted view of themselves is that true of you the third statement is this i lose my self-confidence if i'm not at the top of my field i lose my self-confidence if i'm not at the top of my field If you can identify with any of these three statements, it's possible that for you, success has replaced God in your life. Success has become this drug that is all-consuming. And this morning, I believe that what Jesus is saying to us is that he wants to be everything in your life. Jesus wants to be the singular focus of your life instead of being successful instead of being at the top of your field. And so if you, are, if you are identifying with any of those statements, I want you to listen very carefully to what Jesus is saying this morning because I think he may want you to reorder some things in your life. I'd like us to read a story from the Bible. If you have your Bibles uh, with you, you can turn to the book of 2 Kings. I want to share with you a, a very interesting story about an, uh, a man by the name of Naaman. Naaman. And I, I'm calling him this morning a successful dead man because he was incredibly successful and yet he was a walking dead man. And uh, I, I want us to read this story together. If you've got your Bibles, you'll want to open up to Second Kings chapter 5. If you don't have your Bibles, the story I think is interesting enough. You'll follow along with me. 2 Kings chapter 5, and and as we read this first verse, I want you to pay attention to the description of who Naaman is, because uh, the writer of this story just lays on accolades about Naaman, describing how successful and how influential and how impressive he was. Follow along with me, would you? Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aaron. And so he was a very successful military commander. He was a great man in the sight of his master. His master was the king. And he was highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. The country that he belonged to had had this incredible military victory through Naaman. He was a valiant soldier, very, very brave. But now here's the clincher. But... He had leprosy. He had leprosy. He was a very successful dead man. Now, leprosy in his day uh, was kind of like hearing that you had cancer in our day. If somebody finds out that they have a diagnosis of terminal cancer, people freak out, they, they panic, because cancer is, is, can be like a death sentence to many of us. This is how leprosy was in the day of Naaman, a debilitating disease 
Uh, most of us don't think about leprosy much anymore, but leprosy still exists in our world. I did a little research this week and found out that in impoverished parts of the world around, uh, around the globe, there are people still struggling with leprosy. If it's untreated, it's crippling. Uh, your skin begins to decay and deteriorate on your body. And, and I read this week that the, the stories of people's limbs and fingers falling off is actually old wives' tale, but there are parts of your body that literally die while they're attached to you, and it will eventually take your life. This was the disease that Naaman had. Um, and so because of this disease, and the fact that the disease was communicable, which meant if, if Mitch, you had leprosy, and I shook your hand, your leprous falling apart hand, I could catch that from you. It was a very highly contagious disease. And so what had happened to Naaman is even though he had all of this honor, all of this influence, all of this success, Naaman in his culture had become a complete outsider. People didn't want to have anything to do with him. And I think it's quite possible that Naaman was one of these people who was driven to success because he had become an outsider. Lots of us are driven to prove that we're somebody because we feel like we're nobodies, right? Isn't that true? And if that's true in your case, you could probably relate to this guy in this video. Check this out. Thursday. Here we are again. Same as always. Same as always. I don't fit in here. These people don't understand me. Inside, Inside, I have a dream. I have a dream. I am a free spirit. I'm a free spirit, soaring. Like an eagle. I need a new job. I really need a new job. Somewhere I can be me. Somewhere I can be me. Somewhere, Somewhere I, can I can shine. Monster.com. Today's the day. With that commercial, Monster is keying into this idea that we don't fit in and that there must be somewhere, something we can do to get success. Uh, this is how Naaman must have felt. So let's keep reading. Verse 2 says this, Now bands from Aram, uh, army bands, had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served as Naaman's wife. She was a little slave girl. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And so Naaman went to his master and told him of what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now what I want you to see here is that the little slave girl had told Aram or had told Naaman about this prophet that had some sort of a healing ministry. But when Naaman went to his boss to ask if he could go, his boss said, "I will send you not to the prophet, to the king." There was a little bit of a disconnect here. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, "I will send a letter to the king of Israel." So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. He loaded up his horse and was taking a lot of money, wealth, and provisions to offer in exchange for being healed. Verse 6, the letter that he took to the king of Israel read this way, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you will cure him of his leprosy. 
Now there's a huge disconnect here. Because first of all, he's not going to see the prophet, he's going to see the king. And the other disconnect here is that Naaman expected that his status, his success, his money, and this impressive letter from the king would buy him an audience with someone who would, who would give him the healing that he needed and he would be cured simply because of his station in life. Now look at what happened. Verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See now, he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. And the king of Israel understood what Naaman and the king of Aram did not understand, and that was that the God of Israel is a completely different God than all of the gods that the other nations worshipped. And this is something that we need to understand as well, because the assumption that Naaman had is an assumption that still exists in our world today. The assumption is this, that if I'm good enough, if I'm successful enough, if I have enough money, then I should be able to buy or influence anything that I want. Naaman believed that he could march into Israel with all of his gold and silver and all of his fancy clothes and a letter from the king, and the God of Israel would be obligated to heal him of his leprosy because of who he was. But the king of Israel understood that the God of Israel was a completely different God. The God of Israel, this is what one writer said, is a wild God. He can't be tamed and he can't be manipulated into doing what we want him to do. And so Naaman was confronted with a king who couldn't give him what he wanted. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Now when Elisha... The man of God, this is the prophet that the little servant girl had spoken of. When Elisha heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now, before we keep reading, I want to warn you. Naaman is about to be shocked. Here he is, a man who is very important in his country. He's got all this wealth. He's got all of these gifts to bring to the prophet. And he's going to be shocked by who comes to the door and what he hears when the door is answered. Verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to Naaman. He didn't go to the door himself. He sent a messenger. And he said, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. And now look at Naaman's reaction. It says, he went away angry, and he said, I thought he would surely come out to me, and stand, and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and, and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? There's a little bit of sarcasm going on here. And so he turned and he went off in a rage. Now Naaman's servants were a little smarter than even Naaman was. Verse 13 says, They went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? 
Now, Naaman had this expectation. He came to the prophet's house. He expected that the prophet would meet him at the door, would take his money, perform some kind of magic ritual, and then maybe have Naaman do something special, and the healing would come. But Naaman's worldview was being challenged. Everything he assumed about how God operated was being challenged because he found out he couldn't barter with God, he couldn't buy God's favor, he couldn't control God, he couldn't manipulate God into healing him because God deals with us only on the basis of grace. And in fact, I think that the command that came through the messenger to go and wash yourself in the Jordan was especially difficult for Naaman because it was just so easy. And it didn't make any sense. Go wash yourself. Really? I brought all this money. I brought all these gifts. Do you know who I am? I have a letter. All of this stuff, success, was not what God was looking for because he deals with us only on the basis of grace. This is something all of us have to learn because I think there is still this impulse in all of us deep inside that we don't understand that we can't control and manipulate God. He deals with us on the basis of grace. He's a wild God and he can't be tamed. It's an extraordinary thing. Naaman's reaction was anger because he expected that the prophet would require him to do something great like go and bring back the broomstick of the wicked witch of the west or, or return the ring of power to Mount Doom. Something, some of these extraordinary things, whatever it might be. Naaman was willing to do whatever it was, but really just go take a bath in the Jordan River. It was too simple. It was too easy. We're going to finish reading the story, but just before we do, let me, let me t- make a little bit of an aside. When we understand that God operates on the basis of grace and not on the basis of success or manipulation or, or influence like our whole world is built upon, it makes us reevaluate this story a little bit. It would be easy for us to say that the hero in this story was Elisha the prophet who who had the power to heal, or maybe the hero in this story was Naaman because he finally does what the prophet tells him to do. But let me tell you who the hero in this story really is. It's that little slave girl. It's that little slave girl because this little girl understood what grace was. If you read between the lines a little bit, it's an extraordinary thing. Uh, Our story tells us that some raiders from Aram had gone into Israel. They had taken this little girl captive. She was probably 13 or 14 years old, just a kid. And they had brought her back to this country and she had been forced into labor as a slave to the military officer's wife. She had every reason in the world to be bitter and angry and hateful. She had every reason in the world to wish that that leprosy would creep over Naaman's entire body and make every body part fall off as quickly as possible. That's human instinct. And by human standards, we would say she has every right to be bitter like that and wish that on her master. 
She had every right, really, to, to withhold the fact that she knew there was a healer in Israel. She didn't have to tell her master he could be healed. She could have chosen to withhold it and watch him die, and we would have said she was justified in doing so. But this little girl understood grace, and she was willing to give the information about the healing prophet away so that Naaman could be healed. This is a wonderful picture of grace. And really, we don't know anything more about her. We don't know what happened to her, but in all likelihood, she probably grew up in that house, and she probably lived her whole life in slavery. When maybe she could have used what she knew about this healer in Israel. She could have used it to buy her freedom or bargain with with Naaman or whatever. Whatever the case might have been, but instead she just ministered grace to her master. Unconditional grace. She was the hero in this story. It reminds me of, of what I would call the hero in my story. And the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament calls Jesus the great suffering servant. Because Jesus was like this little girl. He was God. He was the creator of everything we see. The Bible tells us that there is nothing that exists that Jesus did not make. And yet he chose to leave his position of influence and authority and majesty to become a human being. And and not just to become a human being, but he chose to live a life that was sinless, and then he died the most humiliating death he could have died, being crucified on a cross. And he suffered, and he died so that you and I could make this exchange that most of us in this room have made, because we deserve the death penalty, but Jesus paid the penalty so that we could just exchange with him. He was just like that little slave girl. He didn't have to do this, but he did it because he understands grace. He is the perfect picture of grace. And when we talk about, when we talk about success and, and success becoming all-consuming in our lives, what I want you to know this morning is this, and this is on your notes, the God of success in our hearts needs to be replaced with the suffering servant, with Jesus. Because as much as each one of us wants to accumulate all the things that success brings and we want to be influential and we want to feel good about ourselves and we want to know that we're somebody, what we need to know is that really the only person who makes us somebody is Jesus. And we'll never be completely satisfied, like Chris was saying this morning, life will never truly be completely satisfying until Jesus is the number one focus of our life. Let's finish the story. Verse 14 tells us, Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. And then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Now look what he says. Please accept now a gift from your servant. He still, he still wanted to use his wealth and his power and his success to pay back the servant of God. But the prophet said, verse 16, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. 
God deals with us only on the basis of grace. Let me give you three next steps this morning. And if this is something that God is dealing with in your heart, this obsession to be successful, this obsession to make yourself somebody, I hope that these these steps will help you begin making Jesus the first priority in your life. Before I get to those, though, let me read this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is up on your screen. This is from the Message Bible. And, and I think the way that this is written is so beautiful. It says this, Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. He's talking about this Christian life. I don't see many of the brightest and best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? Chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. And that's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. Isn't that great? Friends, we all just need to stop blowing our own horns and pick up a trumpet for God and let him be number one. Here's your next steps. You can write these down and then we're going to pray. Number one, I want to encourage you to choose humility. Choose humility, and, and by, by saying that, I, I want to encourage you to meet, admit your weakness. One of the things that people who are driven to success, those of us that feel like we've got to prove that we're somebody, uh, one of the characteristics that often happens is that we won't admit where we're weak. We won't let anybody see us sweat. We won't let anybody know that we're hurting. We won't let anybody know that there's a chink in that armor that might make us uh, susceptible or vulnerable. If you really want to get rid of this success, God, that can really destroy us by forcing out everything else in our lives, start admitting your weaknesses and and choose humility. Secondly, choose Jesus. Choose Jesus and wash yourself. In the same way that Naaman washed himself in the River Jordan, the Bible tells us, as mysterious as this sounds, that the blood of Jesus washes us clean. I've I've been raised as a Christian. I was raised in a Christian home. I've, I've understood good Christian theology my whole life, but there is still this human impulse in me that that wants, wants to do whatever it takes to impress God with my own righteousness. Anybody else have that inclination? You know what I'm saying? What the Bible says is all I gotta do is just Ask Jesus to wash me in his blood. It's just that simple. I don't have to earn his favor. I don't have to earn his forgiveness. No matter what ugly, horrible things I've done in my past, it doesn't matter because when I come to God, it's Jesus that just washes me clean. It's not my responsibility. He washes me with his blood. And he operates with us on the basis of grace, not on the basis of success and earning it and and manipulating God into seeing how good we are. If you're still 
hanging on to this idea that you have to impress God with your impressive life, let it go and just let the blood of Jesus wash over you. And then thirdly, choose the God of Israel, this wild God who can't be tamed, and walk away from the success God. That doesn't mean that you got to leave your job and sit on top of a pole like some of the (laughs) saints of the Middle Ages did. That's not what I'm asking you to do. Uh, But it does mean that you might need to reorder your priorities so that Jesus becomes number one in your life. Would you put your things aside? Today is the first Sunday of the month, and most of the time we celebrate communion on the first Sunday of the month in our church. And so we're going to do that today. And I thought uh, it was especially fitting today in, in light of this message of how the blood of Jesus washes us clean, how, how it's so simple um, I thought it was a good day for us to celebrate communion together. And so uh, if our servers will get ready to to distribute that stuff, we're going to pray together and then they'll serve us. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this morning... I think most of us have to confess that it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around this idea that salvation is really, really free. It's hard for us in in our success-driven world to really comprehend the fact that all we need is your grace. So many of us are like Naaman and we want to use whatever it is we've achieved, to make a good impression on everybody around us and ultimately, God, to make a good impression on you so that you will give us what we want. And today, Jesus, we're being challenged to just drop stuff and just let your your blood wash us. Let your blood wash us. And so, Jesus, this morning, as as we reach out to you, We just want to invite you again today to wash us clean. Those of us that have been walking as believers for a long time, Lord, sometimes we slip into those old habits of just wanting to make it on our own. We ask you this morning, Jesus, to wash us clean, help us to walk away from the success, God, and to serve you only. And for some this morning, Lord, who are here and we've never yet received the forgiveness and grace of Jesus, I pray, Lord, that in these next moments you will just draw us close to you. Now, just before we are served, if you would just keep your eyes closed, I would like to give you an opportunity this morning. If, If you're here and you haven't ever yet prayed to receive the grace of Jesus, you've never prayed to just let him wash you with his blood that that just washes away all of that past junk. Whatever it is in your life, I don't know. But if you've never received that that gift of grace from Jesus, I would be so honored this morning to pray with you to receive it just before we celebrate in this communion time. 
And uh, I'm not going to call you out or make you stand up or anything like that. I would just love to include you in a prayer. And so if you would like me to pray for you right now, would you just raise your hand where you are? And I'll know that that you want to be included in this prayer. Anybody at all here this morning? All right. Jesus, thank you for washing us all. Thank you, Jesus, that we can stand confidently in your presence, knowing that we are reconciled to God through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. This is why we're celebrating communion this morning, is because, Jesus, we want to remember, we want to honor you, and uh, we just want to thank you for the incredible sacrifice that you've given to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. As our ushers come and and you are served, let me just uh, say a couple of words about communion at Connect Church. We practice open communion, which means you don't have to be a member here to receive communion. But uh, if you are a guest with us today, we hope that you will uh, celebrate communion as our guest and as a part of the family of God this morning. So if you would take a cup and a piece of bread and then hold that, we'll all share together Uh, once everyone has been served. So, John, go ahead and lead us, would you? Just to be with you, just to